0: Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and today we have a special guest, um, and we're going to be covering a topic that is of great interest to me as someone who is um, very much interested in apologetic methodology, um, presuppositional apologetics, the, di- the different schools within presuppositionalism. And so today, we're actually going to be talking about the red-headed stepchild of presuppositionalism, <laughs> uh, Gordon H. Clark. And I say that completely joking. Um, a lot of people uh, know me as being one who uh, is very much Vantillian in his apologetic me- methodology or Bonsonian. Uh, I very much um, am more in line with that school of thought. However, my my deep down dark secret is that I really, really love Gordon Clark. And it is a crying shame that many people who do study up on presuppositionalism have not actually availed themselves of, uh, of the work of, of Dr. Gordon Clark. And so, um, I have a, a guest who has written, uh, the authoritative biography, uh, uh the Graham poom, Pumb- I don't even know if there's any other biographies on Clark written, but, uh, the guest that I have on today, his name is Doug Dalma, and he is the author of the Presbyterian philosopher, uh, the authorized biography of Gordon Clark. Now, if you think biographies are boring, let me tell you something. Once I purchased that book digitally, I could not put my phone down, my iPad down. I read that so quickly, and this is a big deal because I'm a busy guy. I usually don't have time to read uh, in large segments, but I could not put that down. I got educated not only on the philosophy of Clark, um, his apologetic, um, the controversy surrounding him and Van Til. But I also got an awesome little history lesson on the development of the Presbyterian Church in the U.S. Um, and so there's just so much uh, fascinating things there. He's an, uh, Doug is an engaging writer and uh, definitely just a, a brilliant guy in his understanding of Clark. He's very humble. He'll come on and say, well, you know, I'm just going to share my thoughts. Oh, stop it. He's got so much to offer and I'm very excited to have him on. So without uh, further ado... Um, I want to, uh, Oh, just real quick, uh, by way of a quick announcement on Tuesday, I will also be going live talking about the, uh, maybe you guys have seen it on, on YouTube or other, um, Facebook, social media. Um, I'll be talking about presuppositionalism and the use of evidence. So be sure to, to tune in for that. That is on Tuesday at 9 PM, uh, 9 PM Eastern. Okay. So mm-hmm. that out of the way, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Doug Dalma. Thank you so much, Doug, for coming on. I appreciate that uh, you've taken the time out of your busy schedule to uh, to join me to talk about philosophy, apologetics, Gordon Clark.
1: Thank you. Uh, I'm glad to be here. That that intro was so good, I almost started clapping myself.
0: <laughs> That's right. Well, I, I meant every word of it. Um, I don't read biographies. Like biographies are boring uh, for the most part, for me, for me. But when I read uh, when I read your biography of, of Gordon Clark I I'm not I'm not trying to be nice I, I couldn't put it down um, I read through it very quickly um, and enjoyed just being caught up in the story the history learning about the kind of person dr. Clark was um, so um, I highly recommend that people pick that up so so for the folks who don't really know who you are maybe they haven't picked up your book they haven't heard of you um, who are you what do you do and what got you interested in studying the thought? Of Gordon Clark.
1: Well, I appreciate that with the uh, interest in the book, I, Dr. Frame. I, I've only spoken to him a few times, but he he had the same reaction. He was one of my endorsements for the book, which was pretty cool because he's more on the Van Til side. But right. you know, same kind of thing. Oh, I I couldn't put it down because this is the history that sort of he came along after and had always heard about from other people. Sure. Like, hey, you're filling in all this all this stuff behind the scenes. And you really, by going back through the records and compiling other people's letters and books and everything, you get a window into it probably better than Van Til himself or Clark himself or John Murray or anybody else involved because they have only their one perspective. So sure, uh, it's, a, it's like they say with uh, uh, historians today of the Civil War, know, know what was going on a lot more than the generals did at the time. They were lost a lot of times with with all the troop movements, but a historian yeah. can come around later and make some sense out of it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I appreciate that intro. And I, I remember um, Henry Krabendam at um, Greenville Seminary, same thing. He, he he took my book and I think read it in about two hours sitting in his car one day between <laughs> sessions and a conference and just came out with a, a whole flurry of questions for me, another very interesting fellow that I right. recommend getting to know. Um, but yeah, I'm uh, a Bible Presbyterian pastor up here in New York, which I'm hoping to come over to Long Island. I've been there just once to visit another friend, hoping to come there sometime to uh, meet you in person as well. I've really appreciated your uh, podcast. It was funny when you when you asked me to come on, and I looked at some of your previous guests and watched some of the episodes, and I was like, I don't know. Look at these guys. <laughs> you have a, you have a pretty excellent uh, track record there of professors and authors. And various people. So, as I well, 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 real podcast, quick, yeah, go ahead.
0: Real quick, a lot of people think I have all these fancy connections, like, oh, well, you know, how do I get in contact? It's like, listen, the only reason why I've been able to get in touch with so many noted scholars was because of the pandemic. Everyone oh, was home. <laughs>
1: yeah. I thought <laughs> you were going to say just because you asked. I, I used to figure that out in um, that too. Yeah. I worked as an engineer for 10 years in mechanical aerospace type engineering. And I found oftentimes, I mean, it's just a matter of asking. You could get a hold of the sure. president of a company. Um, sure. Usually, you call up a company, and you, you don't say you have a question; you say you have a technical question. And there's usually just a few guys that actually know what's going on. And That's you, right. Right, right to them with a technical question. But yeah, most but, of us yeah. are pastors and theologians, I'm sure, they'd be people are glad to come on your show. So, yeah, I, as I mentioned, I, I worked as an engineer for about ten years. Uh, went to seminary. Um, came into the Reformed faith through the works of Dr. Clark to an extent, but certainly others as well, and um, have continued to really find an interest both in um, Christian philosophy and apologetics, but also in, in church history, which makes such an important setting for those discussions. So I was looking at um, writing about Gordon Clark's thought. I had read many of his books and said, we need to put this together and as I did so, I realized it was better in the context of the history. And as you noted, and as I did in the introduction to that book, I said this is really a, a history of twentieth-century 20th, 20th American Presbyterianism. As Gordon Clark st- starts off in the in the original church, the PCUSA, and quickly finds himself in the the OPC and the United Presbyterian Church and the RPC. Uh, G.S. R.P.C.E.S. and finally these discussions about the P.C.A. Just as um, Dr. Clark passed from the scene, but to go through all of those denominations and to see all that history firsthand, being a friend of uh, J. Gresham Machen, um, and you know having gone on long walks talking philosophy with Van Til, uh, writing with Buswell, you know, and then his friendship with Carl Henry and various others, he was. Um, very well placed, not even so much well connected, but just sort of sure. lucky in where he as, was established throughout his career.
0: Lucky, aren't you a Calvinist? <laughs> we don't believe in that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I,
1: mean, I argue, in, I argue in other places that it wasn't so lucky. It wasn't so good because <laughs> while, while Clark, for twenty-eight years, is at, at Butler University in Indiana, Indianapolis, he's relatively secluded and he only okay. had a few Christians come through, while Van Til, John Murray, and, and the crew there at Westminster, this sort of all-star crew, they're the ones really influencing um, American Reformed theology through their work, because they have the seminarians coming there, and they're drawing sort of the most intellectual um, people as well, which, as, mm-hmm. as you can attest to, has influenced not just uh, the Reformed Presbyterian world, but into Baptist in other circles as well.
0: That's right. That's right. All right. Well, well, let's dive into some uh specifics. Uh my first question for you, um, and this is a, a good question for people who are like, Well, who's Gordon Clark? Or if they knew a little bit about Gordon Clark, he's kind of this presuppositional oddity that people look at from afar. They'd be like, I've heard of him because when I read up on Van Till, Clark's name pops up every so often. Um, but who is Gordon Clark and why should we care?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I one thing I was I was thinking about when I realized I would end up, Van Til's name would come up in this um, discussion as well. And I did some research on that a while ago, wrote an article on Carl Barth and mentioned Van Til in some places. And it's interesting there with Van Til because, yes, he does mention Clark perhaps as an occasional um, foe. He more often will mention uh, Carnell, who was one of Clark's students, sort of an indirect um, right. deal. But Carl Barth is the guy that Van Til wrote about more than anything else. So we might think of Van Til as an apologist or a churchman, like his biography says, but he's, he's an anti-Bartian in, in more than anything else, multiple books, um, quite a few articles on Bart. So yes, Van Til will mention um, Clark as well. And as you know, from reading the biography just now, um, Clark and Van Til are there in that, that very early, small Orthodox Presbyterian church. It's this sort of lopsided, heavy intellectual church, where you have Machen, Van Til, Clark, and all these other guys coming out of the mainline church. And as um, Frame's article wisely calls it, Machen's warrior children, you have these guys, and they're all anti-modernist, of course, right, there's a lot of diversity going on in there. And so uh, Gordon Clark is another um, segment of that diversity within the the Reformed Church. And I, th- I think what he looks to, to an extent, he perhaps um, exemplifies an older American Presbyterian tradition in certain ways, while many of the, the Van Til crew there at Westminster is, of course, heavily influenced by more of a, a not a Scottish tradition, but a Dutch Calvinist. Okay. Um, That's tradition right. And have come through the um, CRC channels, not just Van Til, but Stonehouse and Kuiper as well. So almost half the seminary there is uh, CRC folks. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. All right. Um, now, why should uh, you know, you told us a little bit about who he is, some of the people that he kind of uh, crossed paths with. Why should people care within the reformed community, uh, people who are engaged in apologetics, who identify as presuppositionalist? What's the big deal with Clark, and how can he still speak to us today, even in the midst of all of these methodological in-house fighting between the various, you know, groups that are that are out there? Basically, why should we care about what he has to say, what he's written? And I don't mean that sarcastically. I very much do care what he has to say. But I, I was hoping maybe you can share that with folks so they can see why he's he's so important.
1: I'm I'm trying to figure out the the right word here um, to answer that. Okay, it seems so. Rather than figuring, I can't figure out what the word is for Clark, but once you've read Clark, everyone else feels sort of sloppy. So he's he, he's he sort of <laughs> like, right. wow, well, this guy's really thought this out. He's yes. really thought this through more. And I, and I identify some of those influences in the biography. I mean, he's, he's sitting under a conservative uh, Presbyterian minister father, and he's an only child. So mm. he's learning the catechism. He's reading his father's books. From a young age. Now, that father, of course, had quite a bit different views. He was more of a traditional um, Scottish common sense realism um, Presbyterian and evidentialist, as we would say. Um, But Clark sits under his uh, teaching for much of his life, and then he um, gets to know J. Gresham Machen and others. Um, uses uh, Van Til's syllabi even in some of his classes, which surprises people that Clark liked Van Til enough to use his materials, at, at least for a while. Um, so Clark had this upbringing in the church, but then was fortunate enough to do a PhD program in philosophy. So he's not sort of, and this is, it's sad that it's this way, but a lot of Christian schools, Bible schools and Christian seminaries just aren't up to par with the secular university system. And right. so he, he attended um, Penn, one of the Ivy League schools, and got to, I'm sure, battle it out with the philosophy professors for years. But he also had some Christian influences in there. Uh, uh, his dissertation advisor, a man named um, William Romaine Newbold, was a Christian himself and I think helped... Um, helped formulate Clark's mindset as well. But Clark goes through this, or he's in the PCUSA dealing with all these modernists, but also dealing with anti-Christians in the university. So he's not being just coddled in a Christian Bible college or seminary. He's heard all the arguments and he's been working on refutations of these. But it does, you're right, it comes out into this presuppositionalism, which I tried to identify, well, what's the root origin of that? I mean, nobody sort of comes up with all of these ideas on their own. Sure. very well read. And so I, I identified some background in Abraham Kuyper and James Orr and perhaps Van Til himself, where it seems to me that Van Til got into a presuppositionalism some years before Gordon Clark, at least according to the record. Sometimes there's things that maybe the guy didn't write, but you see Van Til presuppositionalism by about 1929, where you don't see it in Clark until about 1938. So, you know, I'm not going to be so pro-Clarkian that I'm going to claim that Van Til got his ideas from Clark. I more say they sort of developed, um, not even independently, perhaps bouncing some ideas off of each other, but they developed in that same period where there the need the need for something other than just evidentialism was becoming mm-hmm. evident mm-hmm.
0: so now when i when i read clark um what i appreciate about the way he approaches things number one you're 100% correct when you read clark and then you read other people you're kind of like ew <laughs> not <laughs> not ew in terms of content but like yes there's a very sloppy way of putting our the thoughts together clark is so um, and I constantly use this word, he is so refreshingly clear because yeah. he has so many good things to say and you're tracking with him. Um, and he's obviously intellectually rigorous. He has a firm understanding of the history of philosophy, especially with regards to the pre-Socratics and the the arguments that were used um, against empirical claims and things like that. So it's very good to hear him speak on those things. Um, even as a, as a Vantillian, you can learn some great refutations of naturalistic philosophy from Clark because he's more clear in his application than Van Til when he's addressing those things. But when I, when I read Clark, I always understood him to be a kind of all encompassing sort of philosopher. I mean, he's written on a wide variety of things, applying his thought to areas that I think were ahead of its time with regards to applying it to those issues. So um, what were the different things that that Clark wrote about in which he tried to apply his form of presuppositional thought? Perhaps some people call it kind of a presuppositional rationalism or something like that. What are the different areas that he tried to touch on um, in his writing and how all-encompassing is it? I mean, why don't you unpack that for us?
1: Yeah, it's certainly very broad. And that's been... Um, some of the challenge that I'm still working out the implications of this and still looking. Occasionally I'll write an article, Clark's view on probability, or um, one on my mind now is Clark's view on causation, because each of these topics really come together in the system. And right. so he, he through his 45 or 50 books, uh, touches on some of these um, topics, but also wrote over 500 articles, some of which were basically lost to the history bin, you know, kept um, just in the archives or just in a family records collection or something prior to my work on the biography. So I was able to bring a lot of these back um, out there and have those all online now. So they're searchable. So you can study each of these topics individually. So yeah, Clark, I think more so than other Christians, he's looking at who are some of the secular alternatives. Because if we jump into apologetic methodology, he wants to show the failure of those uh, particular methods, not, sure. not not just critiquing them with an um, all-encompassing transcendental argument in which you don't even need to know anything about the opponent's view because they're just wrong, <laughs> right? Right. Um, but rather, hey, I want to really understand what is Dewey saying? What is Sartre mm. saying? What is Nietzsche saying? And so you can you can learn a lot of each of those philosophers from Clark. I, I've gotten to the point, of course, in trying to detail some things, especially his epistemology. As I try to detail it further, I'm sort of wishing there were more. I wish Clark would have writ, written a whole book on Nicholas Malbranch or on St. Augustine or something like this. And mm. I'm having to Um, That that's sort of my long-term goal is to write a book on Christian knowledge, on epistemology. Okay. And uh, primarily using Clark, but also quite well benefited, again, by a Baptist, Ronald Nash, who was a a colleague of Gordon Clark's. Not quite a friend. I I interviewed Nash's um, wife, Betty Jane Nash, a few years ago, and she said, yeah, my husband knew Dr. Clark, but it's not like they were hanging out together. So right, right. right. But, but I find Nash to be particularly brilliant. And, and I'm always sort of amazed that it's Van Til or whoever becomes popular, because me, it's always these other guys, right? Gordon Clark, uh-huh. Ronald Nash, um, a few other guys I'm sure I can dig through my library. But so uh, oftentimes you have the real brilliant guys are sort of hidden somewhere, uh, you know.
0: They get overshadowed by the popular here. Here's what, here's my theory. I suppose a lot of these big thinkers often require the bridge between their intellectual thought to the common person. So you have someone like Van Till, who's very difficult to, um, to understand, but then you have someone as charismatic as Greg Bonson, who in the classroom setting, he just connects so well with the average person. And then of course, his is an excellent debater. So you get to see what he's saying, what it looks like in practice with Clark, he did have some students that did write and try to communicate, but I don't think they, they've been able to do it with the same amount of success, in my it's opinion. It's
1: sort of funny to think of um, Clark's classroom behavior as well, because I know I've met some people who had him as a professor. A lot of them just love the guy and think it was sure. hilarious. You know, he would constantly be bringing up jokes, particularly philosophy jokes, sort of are yes. all through his works and through his lectures. And if, if you had to sort of sit through his class to understand the jokes, you know sure. what Talking about, you know, things like, oh, my publisher is, is as slow as, you know, the Aliatic, you know, yes. things like this, like the man who tried to prove that motion doesn't exist. <laughs>
0: uh, he was very dry in his humor, but that's what made it made it funny. And he had a very, uh, very voice like this. He's like, <laughs> he had a very <laughs> funny way of saying of, of speaking. Uh, yeah, definitely- I think a lot of the,
1: what, what we have of recordings, about 32 recordings are mostly later life. Um, hmm. so yeah, I don't know if he would have sounded different, probably not a whole lot different right. in his younger years. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in his, in his classroom behavior, while he, I think was loved by quite a few, there's, there's a number of people who were just, just, just really upset with him still like all well, these years,
0: like, Billy, like Dr. Park
1: was so mean to me. I was just a little philosophy student that he's beaten me up in class. Wasn't, wasn't Billy
0: Graham a student of his? Wasn't um, Billy Gra- yeah, I,
1: I, I, I believe that he is. There's an interview of a, a Wheaton College student named Samuel Faircloth some years ago in the Wheaton archives who tells a great story that, that I have in the biography of, of Billy Graham coming up to Dr. Clark at the end of a class and saying, Doc, you're cold. And Clark, as a Calvinist, saying, I prefer to remain cold and you know, <laughs> not, become, not be like some kind of Pentecostalist or emotional person but hey, we're, we're thinking this through. this is philosophy after all.
0: right right.
1: So it looks to me that Clark had Billy Graham. Now some um, who are very interested in, in Clark's publisher John Robbins and his writings will note that somewhere John Robbins did say Billy Graham wasn't a student of Gordon Clark's. And I don't know if um, Robbins might even have heard might have heard that even from Clark. And if that's the case, I think Clark would have maybe had forgotten or something like this. Mm -hmm. I I don't really know why it is that there's this discrepancy, but this other man recalled being there with with Billy Graham and and Clark. But, yeah, I mentioned another guy in the biography, a Wheaton student, um, an atheist still to this day who didn't like Clark. And then I know someone at um, Covenant College where Clark taught at the end of his life who um, (laughs) didn't appreciate Clark's. Uh, aggressiveness. Yeah. Although he usually was more Socratic in his teaching and was really trying to push people. I think sometimes he would be a little mean too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's all good. I found him, I found him funny, but at the same time, informative. Um, All right. So um, what are some of the key features of Clark's philosophy and theology? I mean, we know he's a Calvinist. Uh, What sort of Calvinist was he? A lot of people mistake him sometimes for like almost a hyper Calvinist, or a um, someone who holds to kind of a strong determinism. Um, and how did the Westminster Confession of Faith kind of influence his thought? And uh, maybe we can get into some of his other uh, interesting aspects of his philosophy, um, like his views of empirical knowledge or scripturalism or something like that. What are some of the key features that stand out to you in Clark's philosophical perspective?
1: Well, I, I see him as a Calvinist Calvinist. And... I see much of the reformed world as having taken an unfortunate weakening of Calvin, okay. particularly as things like the well-meant offer of the gospel. And that's where um, Clark comes to agreement with um, churches like the Protestant reform church, which he doesn't seem to have any connection with. He didn't, he never met Herman Hoeksema or knew any of these guys, but Clark had read um, a lot of, church history and of course a lot of theology and so he agreed with guys like john gill and the dutch theologian simon van velsen and many others through reformed church history who have said while The call of the gospel is universal to all people. We are to preach to all people. Yet it's not proper to say that God loves each and every individual or that God desires the salvation of each and every individual. But rather, those would be um, almost an Amaraldian type position. Or as the Protestant Reformed Church argues, is that starts leaning you over towards um, Arminianism. So mm-hmm. Clark, yes, very much was a strong Calvinist, but he's right there along with Calvin, who argues in numerous places that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart was not just Pharaoh's own doing, but God is actively involved, and not just not just in a passive way either. So, mm-hmm. yes, I, I think of Clark as a as a strong Calvinist. the the hyper label is is kind of silly in my opinion of, you know, where, where you want to call someone a hyper Calvinist or not. Sure. Um, then so philosophically, he, Clark's looking at a lot of a lot of different things. But what grew what I'm interested in, in particular, is what I started out many years ago is, I just want to know the truth, I, I, I'm very interested in truth. And so he has this real focus not in apologetics, but in epistemology, in the study of knowledge. Okay. And there's bits and pieces throughout his writings of his theory of knowledge, which emphasizes the role of scripture and revelation and God's, um, God's activity in our cognition and in our process of learning, as opposed to any autonomy of man in sort of an empirical mode or an anti-Revelation-type philosophy. So these pieces are through there, but I think that it's not always as thoroughly laid out, at least as I would like, because he was spending so much of his life fighting the modernists, and then in the mid-20th century, getting involved in that, as Harold Lenzel calls it, the battle for the Bible. Clark, for 20 years, is involved in this inerrancy debates. And mm-hmm. so it's it's sad when a guy isn't able to more, write more on what we're looking for, but he's there. <laughs> in, in, in he's
0: fighting important debates about the inerrancy yeah. of the Bible, not satisfying yeah. Yeah. our intellectual questions. <laughs> yeah. So you know, people are going to look
1: back on our times and say, oh, I really wish Joel Beakey and Eli Ayala would have written more on XYZ, but here they are <laughs> talking about. Wokeism or
0: something. <laughs> that's right. Um, so, so how did um, the Westminster Confession of Faith? Um, what role did that play in, or in what influence did it have on the thought of of, Van, of not Vantil? I'm so sorry. See, look at that <laughs> Freudian Freudian slip of uh, of Gordon Clark. Because I'm sure this this kind of was a big deal for him. It was the confession that he held to. Um, how did it affect what he the, the kinds of things he wrote about and the sort of things that he addressed?
1: Yeah, he he has this I, I, his character as you as you see through the book too. You know, I talk about the fact that he he um, compartmentalizes his food as he eats, right? So he okay. eats the peas and then he eats the potatoes then he eats the meat. The, this this left brain mindset that was that was so strict um, that I think that when he as a ruling elder first and later as an ordained minister, when he agreed to subscribe to the confession. When he took his vows, he meant it. So I think that's the best I can understand. So he's he's throughout his career then defending the Westminster Confession of Faith and its views. He's doing so at Wheaton when they're trying to kick him out for being too strict of a Calvinist. He's saying, well, I just believe the confession and all these other denominations. He writes, he writes a list of like 12 denominations. He goes, I just believe what these guys believe. Well, the reality is, of course, is that a lot of people in those denominations had ceased to believe the right. confession of faith. So Clark remains one of these, uh, I would essentially say a strict or full subscriptionist um, and writes um, two books on the confession. One is called What Presbyterians Believe and then it's revised and called "Called What Do Presbyterians Believe, uh, later translated into Korean. I found a Korean copy once. Oh, okay. So he, he's very keen on the confession I think, and I'm not able to identify them at present, but I think in time there might have been a couple nuances where he might not have fully agreed um, with the confession. Okay. Uh, for example, the establishment clause. He, he ends up taking the American version, which is anti-establishment, um, and not the original confession, which, which gives a role for the magistrate to call councils in the church.
0: Hmm. Okay. Now, okay, so he's a Calvinist. He is influenced by the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, there are two aspects, I think, that are very controversial about Clark. Um, well, there's more than two, but two in <laughs> particular that, that, that stand out to me is his view on empiricism. I mean, he did not believe that you can gain knowledge through empirical investigation. Yes. And his philosophy of scripturalism, all knowledge comes from scripture and maybe I'm defining that incorrectly and you can kind of clarify that let's, let's take those things one at a time. So empiricism, um, what was his deal with empiricism? How, how, how did, okay. How did Clark define truth knowledge, how it's acquired and why empiricism doesn't get us there at all? So much so that even people on, on his team, other Calvinists, other Christians are like, come on, no empirical knowledge, Gordon. Come on, let's go. So uh, why don't you unpack some of that for us?
1: Oh, wow. Well, that's that's sort of like if I knew all the answers to those, my book would be done. This is- Okay, I've, I've okay. Been, I've been considering it like a 10-year project from here out. Okay. For, for one, I see a lot of um, Christians pushing out books that I'm not impressed with. Um, there's plenty of good books out there as well, but um, books take time. So yeah, these are a lot of difficult questions. In the biography, I I talk about some of his criticisms of empiricism, but basically he's just saying, these are the criticisms of the ancient Greeks and they've never yet been answered. So Mm -hmm. he's not really presenting his own. He's just showing that all Greek philosophy ended in skepticism and we are there as well. And therefore we need revelation. We need God to reveal knowledge to us if we're going to acquire any knowledge. And so, yes, the scriptures, the the word of God is truth and the Bible or the Bible alone is the word of God. And we get our knowledge from there. But also in Clark's philosophy, when we look there to the scriptures, there is a certain amount, as he would call, innate knowledge. There are certain things that man being made in the image of God knows from birth, such as the knowledge of the existence of God. And so when he looks at the scriptures, both are uh, natural, um, as Kelvin calls it, sensus divinitatis, as we have that in our natural self. And when we look at the scriptures, God is assumed in scripture. So in neither perspective, are we looking at arguments for the existence of God? We all know that he exists and the scripture assumes that he exists. So the
0: empirical arguments are superfluous.
1: Um, as are all arguments for the
0: existence so, of God. So so Gordon Clark would think that um, as a rationalist, uh, he would identify himself as a rationalist, right? Uh, he believed in or, or you can correct that. I i, well, I'm I think thinking he, would, the term-
1: he would say he would say a Christian rationalist or a Christian, maybe even a Christian Platonist, something like this. I mean, he's giving he's giving a role to reason, which is what the confession gives, which is n- good and necessary consequence of deduction okay. from scripture. Um, okay. So reason is a, go- a good thing in Clark's mind, so long as w- what we mean by reason is valid deductions, valid logical deductions, and not some sort of, you know, reason is used in so many different ways philosophically. And for, for many, reason means like, oh, there can't be miracles or mm-hmm. Um, something else like this, like he's going to let his own views trump the scriptures.
0: But yeah. Clark is very much
1: looking at use, having a ministerial use of reason and not a magisterial.
0: There we go. That's what I was going to say if you're making that that distinction between magisterial and, min- and ministerial. But, but we would call him a, ra- a rationalist in the sense that he held to the notion of innate ideas, but yes. not in the exact same way as, say, someone like Rene Descartes maybe. Yeah. And that's, that's what's interesting about Clark.
1: And I think he does this more consistently than others. So he, he looks at Augustine and says, Augustine made this jump from Plato saying that these initial things in our mind are not ideas, but propositions. Okay. So Clark knowledge is about propositions and this, and this really is an eye opener because what does it mean to know grass? what does it mean to know green, right? It doesn't make any sense. Do you know green? Do you know grass? But do you know that the grass is green, right? A proposition actually is meaningful when we um, come into this. So, so so he
0: would hold truth is propositional. That's it. There's no non propositional truth.
1: Yeah. He would, he, he, in some places kind of, says, I, you know, I'm waiting for someone to give me an example of a non-propositional truth. Uh, okay. This, this is, truth is, by, definitional, by definition, propositional. Okay. Uh, you know, certainly in our times, too, other people have written books on personal knowledge and these various approaches, but uh, I think they're dealing with something different than what Clark is dealing with.
0: Okay. So, yeah, all
1: so, uh, figure prominently, where Augustine, it seems... Recognize that I'm not sure Augustine always stayed consistent with that. Sure. Clark more often is yes yeah, saying uh, propositions are that sort of base unit of knowledge.
0: Okay, so man is created with some inbuilt software of the knowledge of God and various propositions that are known innately. There was an interesting thing I re- I read uh, with Clark where he he um spoke about Adam and Eve in the garden and God's command not to uh, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he reflects upon the question, if Adam was just created, how does he know what a tree is? Yeah. (laughs) It almost seems as though the Bible's indicating that there is knowledge prior to his experience um, such that he would understand what God was, was telling him. So is that an example of, of Clark's understanding of kind of um, innate knowledge that man is just built with in light of the fact that he's the Imago Dei, that, that census divinitatis that you mentioned before?
1: Yeah. Um, I I think I fully agree. I, might, <laughs> um, the, I know more of that is Clark talks about that in his debate with David Hoover at Covenant College. This was another um, philosophy professor there at Covenant, um, okay. who was more on the empirical side of things. And and Clark does point out some of that, what you see in the book of Genesis with Adam and Eve and their ability to know things. It doesn't seem like they're hanging around for a long time and slowly placing grunts together and building up a language that develops over time in some sort of way that modern non-Christians would say, but rather they seem to be given knowledge and perhaps even language.
0: Okay. All right. So, um, so we mentioned his view. Well, what, how would he define truth knowledge? (laughs) I, that was the two I wanted to get that. So, so is, is knowledge for him something that is known with a sort of epistemic certainty, such that if you're not epistemically certain about it, it's not really knowledge? He distinguishes knowledge and certainty. Um, he okay. looks
1: at okay. certainty as something like assurance. And he says this is a psychological phenomenon and that you can okay. know something without being certain of it. Um, so. But I think in, a, in a, maybe in a more colloquial sense, yes, that um, because he looks at those ancient Greeks and realizes everything comes to skepticism, how are we going to know anything at all? We need a more sure foundation. So he looks at we need to uh, assume something, as if you don't start somewhere, you'll never start at all. So he looks at this assumption of the scriptures and says, well, what if we just assume this revelation from God and that all these things are true. Um, then we have this we have those propositions and what can be deduced logically from them. and from that we build up a large pool of knowledge and propositions. So these truths are propositional. they're ultimately uh, first in the mind of God and then can be known to man only as God, reveals them to us,
0: or I suppose as they um, are innately placed into us. So, so right there, when you say God reveals it to us, are you referring to general revelation, special revelation, both? Um, and if that's the case, if it's both general and special revelation, then what's up with this notion that he speaks of with regards to scripturalism? Knowledge is is only found to be in the scriptures or anything that can be logically deduced from the scriptures. How does that work out? Because I'm, I'm really, I guess this is my own personal issue with Clark. Um, it's not so much an issue. It's It's more of a, I'm not sure what he's getting at. Does he define knowledge and truth as something that must be known with almost like a Cartesian certainty such that you can't be wrong about it? So if you could be wrong about it, it doesn't count as quote knowledge, but because the Bible is the axiom, we start yeah. there and only that, and that which can be logically deduced from from the Bible is actually something that counts as knowledge. Am, am I, are you understanding the, where yeah, I'm kind yeah. of confused?
1: Yeah, yeah, I am. Um, I don't know if you've read um, Fesco's book um, on reforming apologetics. You have to read that because it's, it's called reforming apologetics, but it's essentially I know. I've read critiques
0: about it, but the, I haven't the, had time to read it. Yeah. The
1: subtitle is basically Van Til was wrong. So yes. I <laughs> have, <to>, have, <laughs> have to recommend it strongly. Now um, what, what I, what I see there with um, Fesco and I think so many others is they're looking at Fesco very strongly emphasizes two books, special revelation and general revelation, which I find is a is a very s- strong way of, of putting it in the sense that that really put scripture and general revelation at an equal level, which, okay, maybe in one way that's okay. And so the distinction I think that I want to make and that Clark makes is that there is this form of general revelation in our innate knowledge that God gives to us. But Clark is not then willing to allow empiricism or the world to give us any additional knowledge. So when we look to the heavens and see the existence of God, it's because we already know God in us. That's why we see God's handiwork. That's why we see his power in the universe. Mm -hmm. We can't deduce God is working when we look at something in the world, except that we already know that God exists. So he would um, deny uh, more general revelation than others would. And I think that for me, that question's really out there. if you're going to accept it, you need some sort of empirical philosophy. I've just never seen any type of empiricism actually work. I mean, how do you get from sensory images to actual knowledge? It just seems absolutely impossible. Clark um, shows problems all the way down the line with each one of these steps. Um, but they,
0: here r- real quick, real quick, though, I'm still not clear as to how he would define knowledge. So, yeah. so for example, I speak to people sometimes who hold to a philosophy known as fallibilism. Are you familiar yep. with fallibilism? Oh, well, more or less. <laughs> yeah. So, so they'll define knowledge in such a way that gives room for this idea that we can be fallible in everything. Right. So, so like, is that really knowledge if you just redefine it to fit that category, but then fallibilism doesn't necessitate that that which you claim to know is actually, in fact, the case. you, yeah. you see what I'm saying. So, so um, you know, wh- what do you think Gordon Clark's response would be to the to the definition of knowledge as taken by a fallibilist versus his yeah. definition of knowledge? So we had some interesting
1: discussions in our Clark circle, and I mean, if you want a good time, you got to join the Clark circles. I got so many great friends. What is that I mean, on so- Facebook or something? Well, we have a Gordon H. Clark discussions on Facebook, um, but there's okay. other places as well. I'm, I say that in truth, but also in jest. I have some I have some fantastic Clarkian friends. And then I know some people who, you know, they're just, they kind of bounce around and like philosophy and are some very peculiar characters that you have to be careful with. Okay. But in um, through some of these discussions, we've looked at that. And okay. So in some places, Clark says that truth is, or, or knowledge is the possession of a truth. Um, I think, um, I think Clark can be shown to use the definition that knowledge is justified true belief. Now, justification of knowledge is that which it has to either be in the scriptures or be deduced from scripture to be justified. That's how that's how truth or, or knowledge for him would be justified, and then, um that justification I call externalist. So you don't always have to know exactly how you came upon this piece of knowledge, but if you know it, um, that, that qualifies. So we're not always aware of the fact that God innately placed this particular truth in my mind or revealed it through the scriptures or that I got it through some deduction of the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Um, that's something that, yeah, I'm trying to work on to clarify more. So yeah, that's, I guess I'm giving you a definition of knowledge, not a definition of truth. Now, a a truth, as I mentioned before, it's at least, or it starts off as a a proposition in the mind of God, or a a proposition that he declares to be true, because maybe there's false propositions in God's mind, but only not not false propositions in themselves, but only propositions that the Lord knows is
0: false. Sure. So all propositions in God's mind are true. Okay. Um, all right. So I, I would truth, I'm sorry, would knowledge be equated uh, between uh, Clark's understanding with a a sort of Cartesian certainty? Mm.
1: Yeah. Um let me I'm trying to Look up in my documents here. Um, I don't know if I can answer that. I'm I'm not thoroughly knowledgeable on um, Descartes, but I think I think you can see a certain amount of doubt there in in Clark's doubting of all these other forms of knowledge acquisition, and therefore the need for revelation. In okay. in, in one in one of Clark's books, this this one here, Introduction to Christian um, philosophy. He, he, uses, he says, a fortiori, God can only be known if he's willing to let himself be known. This is, this is something that seems to be of the very definition of God. And I think I, if, if all knowledge is, is God's knowledge, we can apply that to knowledge also. Say, we can only know something if God's willing to let us know that. So in a sense, whatever paradigm you're looking at has to have a strong role for God or revelation in it. We have to admit, um, certainly as Calvinists, we have to admit God's um, uh, very strong role for God in that process. Mm-hmm. So when when various philosophers discount um, God, discount revelation, and come to these these secular models, I mean, these these views like empiricism, this isn't at least originally developing within a Christian framework. These are developed among non-Christians. And so I think from Clark's perspective, it's okay, if a Christian is an Aristotelian or picks up some other form of empiricism, they're picking up something that's not um, not from the Christian tradition or not from the scriptures themselves. So we want to have this strong distinction between what we what is the world saying and what is God telling us in the scriptures? Mm-hmm. So yes, the, ultimate, the ultimate starting point for us really to distinguish that um, world attempt at knowledge from, from true revealed knowledge from God is to assume the Bible. So we okay. come back to that over and over again, just saying we need to start with the certainty of the scriptures. We need to start with this as true and therefore you really in a sense you just need to be you need to be assured of that singular principle and then you can be assured of every truth of the scriptures okay
0: now um The next line of question, I want to get into a little bit of the differences um, between Clark and Van Till. in as much as you're familiar with them, I mean, obviously your focus is, is uh, Gordon Clark, but I'm sure you've read a little bit up on Van Till since they do cross hairs with regards to um, the controversy that was surrounding their, their disagreement. Um, When you said one has to be confident or have assurance of the starting point. Okay. On Clark's view, I was always under the impression that he had no problem being identified as a fideist, in which case it seems as though the question would then arise. How can one have assurance of the truth of their axiom if by axiom for Clark, by definition, it's not something that can be demonstrated to be true in in like that absolute sense? If, if I'm wrong, you can clarify, but that's a question that, that always comes up. Well, yeah, I
1: mean that that assurance is what comes ultimately from the Holy Spirit. So there's okay. these two separate questions: is um, how do you how are you assured of the truth of scriptures, or how are you a Christian, or any of these questions are answered well by the work of the Holy Spirit. But okay. then there's a separate question: is there good arguments for the Christian faith? And then Clark would say yes. So you can say in the one sense arguments aren't necessary, but They can be used. We because we can come to the faith apart from arguments. We can come to the faith because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. But there are arguments for the faith, and that's where Clark looks not at proofs of God's existence, but he looks at saying that this entire worldview or this entire system developed by the truth of the scriptures is consistent while other systems are inconsistent. And the scriptures formulate. A more um, thorough worldview that provides us with with much more knowledge than these other areas. So when I when I came into reading Clark, I had been very interested in um, Austria, the Austrian school of economics, and there you're developing something very similar. You have an axiom, human action, and you develop economics from that particular axiom by logical deductions. It's very fascinating but that's the extent of it, is you can develop an economic theory. I think what Clark shows is that you can develop from the scriptures an epistemology, a metaphysics, uh, an ethics, a politics, an aesthetics, everything. So as my friend Benjamin Wong recently wrote in an article I put on my blog, it's this sort of program for knowledge. And it's so fascinating because we can use this idea of the scriptures and logical deductions to come up with a scriptural view of anything, anything that it talks about or anything that it that it um, can be the deductions can can reach. So you can see sort of that um, Kyperian uh, idea of uh, like he wanted with the free University in Amsterdam to mm. have Christianity, affecting all of these different areas. You don't just have a, um, a physics department or a, a psychology department, but you have these people teaching those subjects well-versed in the Christian worldview and showing how these are dependent upon Christianity. Mm-hmm. And Clark was you know, looking at the same thing along with um, some of these other men in the OPC in the 1940s. They were looking at starting a reformed university um, in America which would have been modeled off of that, that free university idea of Kuypers. Um, and of course, in the Clark Van Til controversy, you read about this, it sort of fell apart as the men couldn't get along. So uh, the right. Van Til debates and battles was, in a sense, a, a piece of a much larger um, disagreement going on at that time within the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and other uh, Reformed bodies.
0: Mm. Uh, Just real quick, for those who are listening, if you guys are enjoying the content, please give this video a a thumbs up, a heart, uh, leave a nice positive comment. uh, And if you disagree, um, actually in the comments, I always say this, feel free to, um, write out your questions towards the end. Um, Doug will be happy to try his best to address some of the questions that, uh, that you may have. So I just wanted to throw that out there to make sure that in the comment section, um, we will be addressing, uh, questions. Um, we, um, will now be getting into the issue of the differences between Clark and Van till in a limited sense. Um, I want to, uh, Respect uh, Doug's area of expertise and allow him to have the freedom to uh, to to pull back and say, "I'm not sure about what Van Til believed, but here's what Clark believed, and and that's that's fine as well." Um, well, one question before I get to that, I, I lied. There was another question before uh, getting into those differences. You
1: forgot. Also, you you told your uh, viewers here to give questions. You forgot to tell them to give answers
0: that's See, right that, give answers so we can just read it that, back the- and <laughs> that
1: makes it easier and as i'm I'm sure in your circles as well i mean people have a lot of answers here and especially as they get a chance to think about things less on the fly than i am so there's yes. there's a lot of brilliant people in the clark circles as i'm sure in in the circles you you um are involved with as well so it's a uh, I, I oftentimes, it's a lot of a lot of what I write is a collective project. I have four or five sure. regular reviewers. I got some smarter guys behind the scenes that I'm sending my papers to.
0: <laughs> no, that that's awesome. And you know what? That's why a lot of these sorts of discussions are helpful as kind of an introduction. But if you really want to get into the details, you got to do a little bit of the hard work and read up on, on the, the books where there's some good research and careful thinking that's laid out. So, um, you know, Folks who find this stuff like apologetics online, philosophy online, awesome, super helpful, but let that not be your only avenue of thinking about these things. So I I very much respect that. Um, But with regards to um, Clark's claim of the consistency of uh, the Christian worldview, was it Clark's position that all non-Christian worldviews are inconsistent in some way? Or did he just think, that Christianity just answers the problems of philosophy better than some of these other perspectives?
1: Well, I think that he realized that we can't know that all possible non-Christian worldviews are inconsistent. Um, So he did a lot of hard work looking at the main alternatives. That's why, you know, you, you find him writing about some of the major philosophers. He's, he's impressed with these guys like um, Blanchard, uh, Brand Blanchard, and, and um, of course, Aristotle and Plato and Kant and all of these others. These are some of the main alternatives. And then same, of course, there's religious alternatives. And he was no fan of the Catholics and um, didn't write much about, the, about Islam or anything, but surely would argue that they had inconsistencies as well. Okay. Um. So there is a superiority of the Christian worldview And the fact that we can show that it is consistent And then all the other known worldviews are inconsistent And that's where he ultimately says a choice has to be made uh, mm-hmm. You you will never be able to exhaust all alternatives And I, th- I think this is important because Someone could develop, as they have throughout um, the centuries Somebody could develop sort of a Christianity light that would be perhaps fully consistent within itself. You know, he talks about this, like, okay, I'm a fundamentalist. I like the fundamentalists. Um, they're good folks, but there's something better than fundamentalism. There's the entire Westminster confession. So, um, so we want to look at the entirety of the Christian worldview, not some subset of it, nor some sort of deranged version. Whether that's, um, I don't know, the Schwenkfelders or the Swedenborgians or something. You know, we want to look at Christianity really in its ascendancy and in its greatest form, which is the Reformed faith.
0: Okay. All right, and from the from the Vantillian school, uh, that would be a little bit of a difference with regards to what you said with um, not being able to refute hypothetical examples. Um, This would be a a difference within, uh, say, a transcendental argument that's presented by Vantill and Bonson. We would we would argue that there is a way to um, create an argument such that it actually accommodates all future hypotheticals that you might think of, especially, um, you know, religious perspectives that look like Christianity, uh, but aren't. Um, so that's kind of a, a slight, a slight little different there. But, um, but again, it is a valid thing to bring up since the, when we, from the Van Tilen perspective, talk about the transcendental argument, that's a natural kind of thing that pops up. Well, how do you, how does this argument refute, hypothetical, you know, world views that might be developed later on. So yeah. these are important. These are super important issues. Um, and of course, um, they can be addressed in much more, um, in depth way, um, which we're not going to get into now, but, um, let's, let's move on then. Um, Gordon Clark and Cornelius Van Til, if you are sitting around the table talking about theology with your fellow theology nerds, okay. <laughs> and someone was like, but, but Doug, what's the difference between, uh, the apologetic methodology of Van Til and the apologetic methodology of Gordon Clark, or even not just their apologetic methodology, what are some key differences between their philosophy and outlook? Uh, how would you respond to that based on your understanding?
1: You always, you always say, buy my book,
0: right? That's the, that's the right answer. Well, <laughs> yes, that that and I and again, I, I highly recommend that people do. Um, I even if people don't agree with van Til or or Clark or whatever, the topics they discuss are interesting, and the interaction between them, although there's been a lot of heat within those schools of thought. um, if you can bypass all of that heat, and what you do in the book is you really give this very good objective historical perspective, I think there's a lot to be gained there. So, um, so yes, I highly recommend uh, the book. Um, and again, I'm not just saying that to be nice. I really do highly recommend people, uh, take a look at that, but, um, but how would you answer that question, um, in kind of a, a short snippet while also punting people over to some other resources that might be helpful in going deeper?
1: Yeah, well, I really like what you said there by saying philosophy rather than just apologetics. And I, I think you, you've probably read, I wrote an article a couple months ago when, when you first brought up the idea of me coming on your show. You said, let's talk about Clark apologetics. And I'm sitting here going, I don't know anything. So I wrote an article <laughs> on, uh, on Clark's apologetics. And the first thing I noted in there is that when it comes to, well, the first thing I noted was that um, apologetics, in my opinion, seems to be seems to have taken too large of a percentage of our time. In the reformed world, um, okay. it doesn't mean that it's a bad thing, but I think that we've diminished um, the time that we spend on every other subject in the Scripture. Of course, apologetics, you know, gets around to very many subjects, but um, apologetics has become this this big thing, especially with the internet, because we have more opportunity for debate. Sure. So I love, you know, I love to find other topics like um, Rosaria Butterfield writes about hospitality. I think a lot of us Christians know a lot about... Apolog-
0: Boring. No, I'm I'm totally kidding. Yeah. Well,
1: it's like, you know, what about, you know, making beds and serving meals and these types of things? That's right. So, so I think for one that we, we've we've overdone the apologetic discussions in some ways. Sure. And sure. secondly, when you look at Clark and Van Til, especially in their controversy... It wasn't about apologetics. In the entire controversy, that word, that concept never comes up. They, okay. were, they were butting heads about different views in theology, on the essentially on the relationship of God to man, especially when we look in the first of the four views that, that happened in the Clark-Van controversy on the incomprehensibility of God. So I detail that pretty well. I think um, some have, ri- quite a few people have written on that, perhaps better in some ways than I have, but I've gotten into more historical details and I've, I've dug deeper, I think, into the archives on some of these subjects than anyone else has. Um, I've long noticed you know, some of the books I have on my shelves and, you know, what would we what would we do with these um, talks if we didn't have a uh, books behind right. It would look really silly. Right. But some of these, um, books on my shelves, they're entirely written based on secondary sources. They're based on somebody read a lot of books. Well, what I did in the biography is is dug in the archives, in the letters, in the unpublished papers, and interviewed people who were there. Um, so that's, I think, an encouragement. And what I say to people interested in writing in these areas of Reformed theology and church history is, you know, get to the sources, get, get somewhere deeper. Um, so, yeah, in in those debates that it wasn't about uh, apologetics, it was about epistemology. And I think maybe some of that discussion of apologetics comes on a little bit later in that, I kind of call it Clark Van Til round two when Bonson and Robbins are like about to kill each other. Um, This is sort of the low point in the Clark Van Til um, relations. And, And apologetics becomes a deeper discussion at that point. Of course, apologetic methodology depends on some of those theological and epistemological differences that Clark and Van Til had. So, yeah, and, you know, to summarize the differences there in in the biography, I talk about the four that happened at the um, controversy itself, the incomprehensibility of God, the the free offer of the gospel. Um, It's been a few years since I looked at these. I can't remember them all anymore, but they're talked about there. And then the, the issue of like the transcendental argument, that only comes up later, and it really isn't even discussed much between Clark and Van Til. It's basically left off with Clark saying, I've been waiting for 30 years for you to show me the argument, Cornelius. Uh, so um, where is the actual argument? And so I, I, I've twice tried to write a paper on the transcendental argument, and I've have concluded in my own personal failure both times and have opted not to post it. But um, as you look through that history, you see there by the Clark Van Till as they both passed away in the 1980s, that's where it's sort of left in these Clark Van Till discussions is show me the argument and Van Till not sure if the argument can be shown. And I think some Van Tilians aren't sure if you can show the argument, but um, you're... Your podcast with James Anderson was fantastic, and he talks about how the argument can and has been shown. So that moves us into a new period. Clark and Van Til are both deceased, and we actually have the argument written out. So now we have something to look at, something to actually. <laughs> Yay. Add on.
0: we finally yeah. made some headway. <laughs> yeah, and
1: so, I mean, you think this would be like step one? It shouldn't have taken so long. That's um, right. <laughs> but it, it's there.
0: Right. Write out the argument and then they die and you have to wait for uh, Revealed Apologetics podcast, yeah. an interview with James Anderson. Finally. some <laughs> yeah. And so, of course, Clark had um, a number of problems
1: against arguments for the existence of God in general. And as I was trying to write this paper, too, there's this question of whether it's a proof or an argument or, mm-hmm. you know, what the differences between these things are. And so I certainly don't think there are proofs in that sense. And if someone wants to leave it as just an argument, I'm, I'm sort of befuddled in saying, well, what's what is an argument that's not a proof? That's not a very good argument. And so why should I believe it? Um, so I, I don't I don't buy on to the transcendental argument. I understand um, to an extent what what's trying to be done sure. there, um, and it would be fantastic if we just had to swing that one hammer at people, transcendental argument everybody. Um, but uh, I think apologetics um, requires quite a bit more than that.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for that. Uh, we are just creeping over the hour. So what I want to do is I want to, tr- I want to transition a little bit. Um, to some of the comments and questions on the side. Now, these comments, sometimes they are random and have something to do with what you said, and sometimes they're not. And so we'll we'll do our best through uh, some of them. Uh, P- uh, Parker, sorry. Parker says, Doug is the freaking man. Pop says, hey, Doug. There you go. <laughs> you got to love the internet, right? Um, well, now we were, yeah. I, I have to give a shout out there for his father. Uh,
1: he, he is an author himself. So if you're okay. interested in Parker's father's books, look up Frankie Chocolate. He's written 50 or 60 books all
0: on Amazon, Frankie Chocolate. They're they are nice. pretty
1: funny. He's a good guy. All right.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Now, uh, this is a comment which I think was related to what you said with regards to not knowing specifically where the presuppositionalism in Clark or Van Til really came from. And this person is suggesting that could it be? That presuppositionalism goes back to the German idealists. Um, now, I don't know what this person, where specifically they're coming from, uh, but why don't you speak to that? Maybe I'll share some of my thoughts as well if if you don't cover what I think you might.
1: Yeah, I I don't know that many people have written, if anyone has, other than the one chapter I did on the origin of Clark's presuppositionalism. With when it does come to Van Til and his views, idealism often comes into play. um, Particularly, there look at Timothy McConnell's dissertation. I believe at Florida State, Um, he writes on the origins of Van Til's presuppositionalism. Okay, Um, that one's really excellent. And yes, he does um, track into some of the idealists, Um, but yeah, the extent
0: of the dependence.
1: Uh, that's not yeah that's not something i can speak Hmm. to too intelligently
0: yeah and um and 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 when we talk about idealism, idealism is the, the the concept of idealism is very much linked with Van Til because he was interacting with idealistic uh, philosophical perspectives. And so, um, what we got to be careful with, though, is that we have to understand. And of course, I'm I'm more of a Van Tilian, and so I would say this. But just to keep this in mind, that the utilization of idealistic terminology in Van Til does not so much show a dependence upon idealistic philosophy for his thought but rather it is a utilization of the language of the philosophical schools that he is interacting with. So we want to make sure we keep that d- uh, distinct. Now, whether one agrees with Van Til or not, I would argue, Van Til would argue, Bonson would argue, and those who are in that school would argue that what Van Til is saying is grounded in Scripture, but because of the um, interactions that he's having in his particular yeah, historical I agree contract. there. I'm having a little bit of an issue here. I'm going to... Real quick. Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. How about I remove you and then you can come back in and hopefully uh, there'll be a better connection. Okay.
1: Well, now
0: it's working. So let's, I'll be patient. We'll try it again here. <laughs> okay. Well, what I was saying is that Van Til would, would argue that his. Uh, presuppositionalism is grounded in scripture, but it is bathed and clothed with idealistic language because in his writings where that's found, he's interacting with idealistic philosophy. And so there is mention uh, in the literature of uh, the importance of adopting the language of the philosophers. If those are the ones you're interacting with. Now there are those who agree or disagree with that, but those would be my thoughts with regards to the relationship between idealist and uh, vantil's presuppositionalism. All right. Um, yeah. let's see here. Let's see. Like, let me see, find a question in the midst of this. Okay. Maybe you can speak to this as a comment. Uh, Charlie says empiricism contradicts man as innately endowed with the image of God and the ability to think man is not a tabula rasa. Um, w- what would be your views on, on that Doug? Or maybe, uh, uh, if Clark would Clark agree with that that kind of brief comment there. What what, what were Clark's view uh, with regards to epistom- um, empiricism rather and the innate knowledge of of God?
1: Yeah, Charlie's right there because um, most or all empirical views. They don't want your mind to modify what's coming to it from the world. So if you have something other than a blank mind, then you're not receiving what's out in the world. You're receiving some altered view of it. So if we see in the scriptures that we are indeed given a mind and innate knowledge, then we no longer have a blank mind on which the world can write itself. But Hmm. rather, we have a divinely um, given mind, an actual mind. Um, And so at least a pure empiricism is um, rejected because of that. Now, you might still be able to pull together some role for the senses in knowledge acquisition, but certainly the Aristotelian or other traditional uh, empiricists have to be ruled out, um, scripturally speaking. And I think, I think probably a lot of um, apologists and Christian philosophers would understand that. I'm just not sure that that people really. Question this, you know. That's what I see when I look at Van Til and others. I just say, like, well, what is their epistemology? They just they don't often get to that subject, and there can be a lot of implied um, use of the senses, which um, Clark certainly rejects, um, thinking that the the role of the senses is something other than knowledge acquisition. So yeah, mm. that becomes a, a, a very Interesting topic, and something that I'm trying to sort out better for writing a book on it. The, the role of the senses is is something huge, and something you know, we really, need, I think, need to look to Augustine and others um, for some direction.
0: Mm. I'm wondering, Doug, now that I'm listening to you talk about that, have you read Debating Christian Religious Epistemology? It's called, it's entitled Debating Christian Religious Epistemology, and there's a segment there. Uh, where Scott Oliphant contributes uh, a description Mm. of, or an explanation of the revelational epistemology. And of course, uh, Scott Oliphant is a Vantillian, and so he goes very much into the nature of revelational epistemology in detail. His particular article is just about that. So you might want to check that out if you're interested uh, in in that perspective. Debating uh, Christian religious epistemology. It's an introduction to the five views on the knowledge of God. Available at, kin- available at and Kindle and Christian. Gonna- <laughs> yeah, I'll be right back. Oh, I thought you were writing something. So, Okay. Uh, let's see here. We're going to get to another question. Um, if you can compare Van Til with Kant in terms of taking knowledge as a given, can you compare Clark with Descartes in terms of questioning the possibility of knowledge? Um, well, let me remove this from the stream here. Let me see. Uh, I'm going to kick from the studio. Doug will be removed from the studio. If you want to prevent this person from rejoining, you should ban them instead. (laughs) I've never done that before. Um, Okay. So uh, real quick, I'm going to, obviously when uh, Doug comes back on, he's having some technical difficulties. I'll let him answer the the Clarkian part. Um, But with regards to comparing Van Til and Immanuel Kant with taking knowledge as a given, uh, we want to be very careful. As I said before, with regards to um, Van Til's interaction with idealistic philosophy, um, Van Til is not a Kantian, and his transcendental argument is not identical in every way with uh, Kantian transcendentalism. So you want to uh, keep that in mind. But I think your question is a good one, uh, whether we can compare Clark with Descartes in terms of the questioning of the possibility of knowledge. Um, Clark um, definitely utilized a lot of the skeptical arguments of the ancient Greek uh, um, thinkers, um, and I, I would argue that that's a useful tool when thinking along the lines of Cartesian philosophy, when he's doubting um, whether knowledge can be uh, ascertained through various means, but let Doug is connected back on. Let's see if if he can share his thoughts there. All right, there you are. Okay, Thanks. so here here is the, the question
1: for me. There, a little bit of a
0: um, no, no yeah, problem, well, I, no problem. I,
1: I heard most of the first one. Um, as far as the debating Christian religious epistemology, I have not read that. I can I can uh, okay. acquire a copy and add it to the dangerously tall stacks of to read material.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, and, uh, well, well. Oliphant's, Oliphant's section is actually quite manageable. You could just read his section just to get his perspective. I mean, it's not a book necessarily meant to be read in chronological order. I mean, they have the views there, but you can read Oliphant's in like you know very quickly. So uh, that might be helpful. So you don't have to add another because the book's pretty thick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> but but here is a question, and I, I um, perhaps you could share your thoughts. So so someone says here, James says, if you can compare Van Til with Kant in terms of taking knowledge as a given, can you compare Clark with Descartes in terms of questioning the possibility of knowledge? Um. I'm
1: not sure I have much to intelligently contribute to this question other than what I said before about okay. um, Clark's views on certainty. So I'll, I'd have to think about this one more. But I definitely, I see where he's going. And that's a very interesting question. Mm-hmm. I, was, I did a, um, a conference at Covenant College a few years ago, and a number of philosophers were there asking great questions. And like a week later, something came into my head. But at the time, Philosophy just doesn't work very well on, uh, on
0: live. <laughs> on the fly, on the fly. On YouTube. Yeah, <laughs> no, I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. Someone asked the question, uh, was Clark a rationalist? And we did address that um, very briefly. But um, why don't you explain the sort of rationalism that he held to? You said that he was a Christian rationalist. Um, why don't you uh, break that down for us?
1: Yeah, I just just that he would... Uh, approve of the use of reason as it applies to proper logical deduction, but certainly not approve of reason in some of the ways that other philosophers and other thinkers have saying, oh, you know, Jesus couldn't have been born of a virgin because that's not reasonable. Right. So he he certainly is not a rationalist in overpowering the scriptures in a magisterial way. But I really think does use reason in a ministerial way um, to go uh, from the scriptures to logical deductions.
0: Hmm. Okay, Um, here's a question that we didn't cover, but it's a Gordon Clarky question. Clarky Clarkish kind of question. Uh, Baptized by Jesus says, question, what's Gordon Clark's idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit?
1: Well, I'm not sure that he wrote on this much. I mean, he's just going to be taking the historic Presbyterian position here. So, um, yeah, nothing so, nothing
0: particularly notable. So so his view would be a sort of like cessationist view if he doesn't associate that necessarily with like speaking in tongues. And, and he would probably say that that was something for the early church. So he, would he take a cessationist view or would he even yeah. relate the two?
1: Yeah, he's a cessationist and I think that is necessary in his principle. Okay. Uh, that, I mean that's essentially what he's saying in his in his very starting point is there is no other form of revelation there is no knowledge coming to man in in other ways other than by the scriptures or through the scriptures.
0: Okay? All right, very good. Um so someone's asking the question. So we can know propositions as God has them. That was a a, a debate a debate issue between Van Til and Clark. Uh, why don't you unpack what Clark believed about our propositions and God's propositions, and and how that differs slightly? Well, how it drastically differs from uh, Van Til's more analogical reasoning.
1: Yeah. Well. The answer to this question directly is no, we can't know propositions as God knows them, because he knows them intuitively, we know them discursively, he knows them all at one time, we know them one at a time, these types of differences in the way that we know them. But what Clark is arguing for throughout those debates is that we can know the propositions that God knows. And his argument is that if God knows everything, if we're going to know anything at all, it has to be something that he knows. So we okay. can't we can't divorce those propositions from the propositions that God knows without ending up in a complete skepticism where we can't know anything at
0: all. Mm. All right, very good. Uh, someone says, Clark sounds like a universalist. Was Clark a universalist? You can answer that question very quickly.
1: <laughs> you should read his book on predestination. He's a very <laughs> strong Calvinist. Okay. There's, there's no love for the universalism or Arminianism, or even that hypo calvinist well-meant offer stuff you hear these days.
0: Okay. Okay. I like comments like this. These guys define faith as a belief system. Wrong. <laughs> Is that how you define faith? Um, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Neither, neither, neither do I. Okay. So there we go. Uh, let's see here. I got to distinguish between the questions here, the comments and questions. And I apologize if I skip over someone's question. It's kind of in, hard to uh, to differentiate the comments. and the. Okay, here we go.
1: You know half um, of these people are me under other names, given my...
0: <laughs> <laughs> Imagine. All right, here's a question from Jimmy. Uh, Doug, what about the charge that Clark was Nestorian in his Christology, right? Can you elaborate the differences between Clark's view and classic Nestorianism? And does Clark's view contradict his affirmation of the Westminster Confession of Faith? If you're able to answer that question, great. If not, no worries.
1: Um, I can't do any better than what I did. And I think the last chapter of my book, I discussed this question some, and I also reference a paper that um, Ken Talbot and Gary Crampton wrote and published with Whitfield Media on that very question. I know Jimmy, he, I think he's probably familiar with that paper. Maybe he's not satisfied with it, or maybe he's not satisfied with my book and I'm heartbroken. But,
0: um, <laughs> do, you know, do you know Jimmy? Yes, yes. Okay, all right. Okay, so read the book. That, that's the answer to the question, read the book. Um, someone asks, uh, does Clark effectively limit the apprehension of truth exclusively to believers?
1: Um, no, because of the innate knowledge. That I was discussing before. So, unbelievers surely don't have very much truth, <laughs> um, but it seems that they know a few things. Um, I have this letter here. This is something I was hoping to show. I, I've probably quoted in other places, but this is fantastic. I mean, this is the kind of stuff you find in the archives. Okay, I, I should have a. You bring me on just to discuss letters someday. I've got, <laughs> I've got great letters like Van Till saying, "I wish that Rushdoony guy would stop saying." He got these ideas from me <laughs> <laughs> you know what
0: maybe maybe we can do that here give me one second maybe we can do that that would actually be a lot of fun let me see here all right I'm sorry you're bringing out your letters I have to I have yeah. to nerd, nerd out and, and have my my autographed oh. copy of defense of the faith
1: okay I thought uh, you were pull out, I thought you were gonna pull out an autographed copy of the letters of Gordon H Clark <laughs> See, I um, want a physical
0: copy of that. I have to order one. I know you okay, gave me yeah. the, uh, the digital copy. Yeah, I had the- to, um,
1: Tom and I at the Trinity Foundation um, compiled okay. these together and had them printed. And I'm not sure if this one's in there or not, but there's this interesting letter here. Um, and in this, uh, I forget the name of the publication. They're, they're available. Um, Wayne Sparkman has made these available on the PCA Historical Center website. There's some discussion between Clark, Van Til, and Buswell in... Um, in a small publication where they talk about presuppositionalism. And so you have these two different schools of presuppositionalism in Clark and Van Til. And then you have Buswell um, holding to an evidentialist type view. And so I have this letter here as Clark sort of responds to, I think it was actually just Buswell and Van Til debating with each other. So here Clark sort of chimes in via letter and he writes to Buswell in November of 1947 and it's somewhat, it's related to this question you're asking about common ground. This is, you know, this is one of the debated phrases throughout the 20th century as presuppositionalism was coming together, common ground. And so Clark says to Buswell, it amuses me somewhat to compare what you say of my thought with what Dr. Van Til says. You complain that I do not allow for a common ground while Dr. Van Til condemns me because I do probably I suffer from an inability to express myself clearly. So Clark, it it discusses this problem, this common ground between believers and unbelievers that Van Til, Clark, and Buswell each seem to have some different views or talking past each other. And then finally in the letter, Clark explains his view, which I think he does so well here. So so he writes these letters, you know, I have a collection of Clark's letters and sometimes he must've written multiple letters in a day but they're written better than than I certainly write. It's it's book level. So he says, I hold that Christ is the light and logos that lighteth every man that comes into the world. I hold that every man is made in the image of God and that every man has what may conveniently be called an innate idea of God. All this is common ground between the Christian and the unbeliever, but there is no common ground between Christianity and a non-Christian system. It seems to me that it is wise to keep distinct what is true about a system and what is true about individual persons. Systems attain a high degree of consistency. People often do not. Mm -hmm. So there is a, a modicum of common ground between believers and unbelievers in that we are both made in the image of God and so have some innate ideas there. But our worldviews are almost in are are entirely at odds with one another. And the actual knowledge available to a Christian it, so many multitudes surpasses that of what an unbeliever can know because we believe in the scriptures. So we don't have just some tiny little spark of divine light showing us that God created the world, but we know everything about the Lord Jesus that has been revealed to us and therefore we can know salvation which the unbelievers don't mm-hmm. uh, so yeah I think it, that the the Christian amount of knowledge so dwarfs the unbelievers knowledge that it almost is as if the unbeliever has no knowledge at all
0: okay okay um Dr. Roberts uh, asked please ask Doug how Clark and Van Til differed on the issue of common grace um
1: well in the in the PRCA debates the Protestant Reformed Church these of course are that's that's the a big discussion the three points of common grace in the um, synod of Kalamazoo in 1924 well that issue comes over into the Clark controversy as i mentioned you have these um, professors Van Till RB Kuiper and Ned Stonehouse who had come from the CRC and were very interested in that discussion on common grace well at Clark's controversy it wasn't so much um, those the two of those questions about common grace and how it how it um, applies to the unbeliever or society, but it was primarily that question of the well-meant offer of the gospel that came into the Clark. Van Til mm-hmm. debate. And that's the question is does God desire the salvation of those whom he does not save? And for Clark and Huxima and many other Calvinists, it it just seems like an obvious answer to a silly question. And mm-hmm. it would be um it would be clearly contradictory to say anything um other than no, that God desires God truly just desires the salvation of those whom he does save. So that question is is more. Um, focused on in, in Clark at that time and a little bit in some of his later writings. But I don't know that he actually addresses anywhere else the question of common grace as far as um, unbelievers being uh, empowered by God's common grace to make advances in science or or something else like this. The, Clark doesn't get into those discussions the way that the, the Dutch churches do.
0: Mm, okay. All right. Very good. There are a couple of uh, things here, I suppose. Uh, de- tag, transcendental argument is a rational argument proving God exists. It is basically a <laughs> convoluted ontological <laughs> argument. Uh, no, it's not a convoluted ontological argument. There are some differences there. Although there are some connections with some some of the ontological aspects. Um, John Frame points out some of the possible similarities there. And even Bonson admits that it, in a sense, it can be um, formulated as a sort of um, ontological argument, but it, but it's by no means a convoluted version of it. A transcendental argument is um, whether people debate w- how it can be stated is one thing, but it's not convoluted. It's a very simple concept. <laughs> um, whether it can be worked out is the issue. And I, th- I think it can. Um, and, uh, to be perfectly honest, when I've used it with, um, unbelievers, I have not, um, heard any good responses. So <laughs> that last part I just said actually will, um, uh, respond to this comment here that the tag argument is dead. Uh, well, it's very much alive and still argued in the literature. Um, and so, uh, I don't know what the second part of the philosophy, there's several gods. Um, I don't know what that means, but, um, yeah, well, we'll Eli, you,
1: maybe you've, heard this discussion some, but it might be something interesting for you to work on. I don't know if you have an answer right away, but the okay. question of whether TAG is or should be the impossibility of the contrary or the impossibility of the contradictory. So that's that's a question that's been brought up in Clark circles is are Vantillians confused between the contrary and the contradictory and which one should the argument truly be?
0: Yeah, I'd have to think. I've never heard it phrased that way, so I'd have to think about what that means. Um, yeah. what what we would say as 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 um, uh, using the transcendental argument, we would say that the Christian worldview is true, and its denial in any manifestation that it comes must assume must assume our point that the Christian worldview in order to. Uh, to try and refute it. And the and it's more than simply a claim within the context of the apologetic encounter. We try to draw that out. And that's done through worldview analysis, internal critique, which I think is something that uh, Dr. Clark was really good at. But then the extra added feature that I think is different than, than Clark is that we also tried to show not simply inconsistencies within the unbeliever, but the transcendental necessity of the Christian system. And whether someone is able to successfully do that um, is a point of debate, but I do think that it can be done, although I think we can do a better job in the way that we explain it and use it within the context of various interactions. Okay, so I hope that's that's helpful here. So there's a couple of things here, but we're creeping up on the, well, we just reached... Uh, at 1 30, uh, so I don't want to, uh, <laughs> we can technically go forever. Uh, we'll take a couple more questions and then we'll, we'll, we'll close it up here. Um, here's a question here. Um, if, apologize. if you haven't already, uh, will you please use a few, uh, give a few examples of proximate presuppositions and ultimate presuppositions? Um, yeah, this is a distinction that's made uh, by Van Till and Bonson, where we are talking about the starting points or intellectual starting points. Uh, so we'd say something to the effect that the, uh, uh, God and his revelation are our starting points. They, they provide the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience. And then oftentimes the objection comes, well, you have to start with your own mind first before you start with God, because you have to think about these things before you could even, you know, uh, reflect on, on those other things. Um, and Van Til will make a distinction between proximate starting points and ultimate starting points for Van Til, um, this was not even a point of conflict for him. Um, our proximate starting points are our own minds, obviously. I mean, he didn't deny the fact that you have to think about these things, right? But in a ultimate context, our uh, the proximate starting point would not even be able to be intelligible without the, um, metaphysical, and epistemological realities given the Christian worldview, namely the triune God that grounds being and His revelation, which is both immediate and mediate, that grounds our epistemological ability to gain um, knowledge about reality. So, um, so I would say that those are the differences between, you know, my rational capacity would be a proximate starting point. I need to start there, but my ultimate context, my ultimate context is the triune God who reveals Himself. He is, He is the one in whom I. Live and move and have my being, um, and, and because I'm made in the image of God, and I'm surrounded by the environment of His revelation, we exist corum deu in before the, before His face. Um, so that's a very important aspect when understanding these different issues of, of starting points. That's a that's a great question. Let's see if I can find one more here. This one's for you. There we go. There we go. Can scripturalism deduce from scriptures that self knowledge? is impossible. <laughs> and, this, and with this, we'll end. Oh, Clark. So make, so make it good. Make it good. <laughs> yeah.
1: Clark quotes from the scriptures here and says, um, wh- where is it? Man is sinful above all else who can know himself. I, I forget the exact <laughs> quote, but um, yeah, he I, I can, I'll have to find that um, exact quote somewhere. But um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that that's the extent of I know uh, what I know of Clark's response to that question.
0: Okay. All right. Well, um, listen, I, I really, highly recommend folks pick up uh, Doug's book, uh, The Presbyterian Philosopher: The Authorized Biography of Gordon Clark, and I promise, I promise, or your money back and no, I'm just kidding. I can't do that. Um, I promise that you will not be disappointed. It is a def- is a very, very interesting read. Um, and and it's a, a a wonderful glimpse into a brilliant mind. Uh, Gordon Clark was, was brilliant, even though, um, there are some disagreements and areas of controversy. He had so much to, um, uh, to, to give to the intellectual life of the Christian mind. And so I highly recommend folks pick up that book and pick up some books by Gordon Clark, you know, um, you know, definitely not, uh, it shouldn't be your introduction. Um, but you might want to pick up, um, a, a, Christian view of, there we go, a Christian view of men and things and his, um, his magnum opus, uh, philosophical work, Thales, uh, to Dewey, definitely not light reading, but, um, some good resources there. Doug, would you like to share anything before we, we, before we close here? Yeah, I
1: just, I just wanted to give, um, uh, 52 book recommendations, the entire <laughs> corpus of Gordon Clark's, uh, writings. So come visit me if you want to borrow one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) if I borrow one, you might not see them again.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Piece them together. And some of the early ones are hard to find before he, before he's writing with a Christian publisher, when he's just writing in academia on the, on the early Greeks.
0: That's right. Probably didn't make a lot of copies of those. Right. Right. But definitely good stuff. Listen, thank you so much, man. I it's a, it's a pleasure to finally like talk to you face to face and I'm looking forward to to hopefully one day meeting you face to face and and um, and just getting to know you a little better. So I thank you so much for your time, and um, I hope um, I hope you have an awesome rest of the day. Thank you so much. Yeah,
1: this was great. I appreciate it, and and uh, blessings on your continued work with the podcast. I know it's been like I like I mentioned the the people you've been getting on here. For the most part, there's a few exceptions. For the most part, they're
0: pretty. <laughs> okay, that's right. That's right. Well, well, thank you so much, guys. That's all for today. Stay tuned for Tuesday at 9 p.m. We'll be talking about presuppositionalism and the use of evidence. And um, and then uh, stay tuned for some uh, upcoming interviews that hopefully, based upon who contacts me and says they're good to go, I'll let you I'll let you guys know what's what's in store for the future. I'm also creating an online uh, course. Um, in which I'll be recording uh, lessons, teaching uh, presuppositional methodology and the different ways that it can be applied. And so I'll let folks know that. And the Revealed Apologetics website will be launching um, in a few weeks. So um, all that, that's it for today. Take care and God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com.